those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to The Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi. And today we're doing an episode that I have been wanting to do for so long now. Um, if you caught my two-part series on strategies for post-capitalism, I started to talk a bit about the importance of decolonizing our movements. Uh, got a lot of annoying pushback from settler leftists. And I thought, no, 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 no. Uh, we need to have a conversation about this. And we need to do a lot more thinking about this as settler leftists on Indigenous land. So today we have Green, a comrade from the Indigenous Anarchist Federation who goes by at a neon green city on Twitter. So please check them out. Please check out the Indigenous Anar Anarchist Federation. So uh, yeah, Green, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yes. Yeah, so um, we're going to start off just by shouting out the patrons and then we will dive into the discussion. But I'm super stoked to have this discussion with you. I'm yeah, I've been really wanting to talk about this for a long time. We've been talking about doing this since the summer. Yes. Yeah, actually, we have. <laughs> and we're making it happen now. So, uh, so yeah. So just before we begin, I'm just going to shout out the new patrons for this month. So thank you so much to Chloe Fisher, Daniel Sweeney, Pierce Delahunt, who we are actually going to have on the podcast uh, very soon, talking about social emotional learning for socialism. Ooh. Yes. I'm very excited for that. Uh, thank you also to Amy and Cats, our comrades. And if you would like to support the show, you can become a monthly donor uh, at patreon.com slash vegan vanguard, or you can make a one-time donation via PayPal on our website at veganvanguardpodcast.com. Or you can rate and review us on iTunes, which I always love seeing the reviews, as I always say, especially the Canadian ones. So thank you for that. Uh, or just share this episode with friends and family to increase our reach. So I guess before we begin, uh, just wondering if you want to talk a bit about the Indigenous Anarchist Federation and your involvement with that and what kind of work you're doing. So the Indigenous Anarch Anarchist Federation started as, um, uh, it actually started on Twitter. There was a basically a loose network of uh, Indigenous Anarchists on Twitter. We all posted separate from each other, probably most Famous of us with Bad Salish Girl, whom you should follow. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Insurgent E uh, was like, hey, we should not, we should like collectivize and build theory together instead of just tweeting and having these discussions as individuals. Mm -hmm. And uh, so me, Bad Salish Girl, there was a handful of others, we, we just formed the Indigenous Anarchist Federation. And uh, from there, uh, it's been a lot of building theory. Um, we've since launched a website, although I, I have no direct involvement in the website myself. I mostly just run the Facebook page. Oh, okay. Um, I do do a little bit on Twitter as well, but mostly the Facebook page is 100% me. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I don't post more content. <laughs> I always feel bad. <laughs> no worries. Uh, yeah, so that's great. Uh, did you want to talk a bit about also maybe your background? Like you're from the Métis Nation? Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm from the Métis Nation with family ties to uh, Simcoe County. But I myself am not, not from there. I'm actually from Saskatchewan originally. And uh, mm -hmm. we, we moved out to, uh, after my parents got divorced, we moved out to Simcoe. Uh, Simcoe has the largest Metsi population in Ontario. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it um, 
But Mitzi people were displaced there after the rebellions. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay, so um, I guess we'll, we'll dive into the, the meat of this discussion. That's not vegan, so I'll take that back. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, to dig into the veggie meat. <laughs> the veggie meat of this discussion. So, you know, many settlers will very cynically think about decolonization as shipping everyone back to quote unquote where they came from. And I know that decolonization is a really complex term and it means different things to different people, but I'm wondering if you could explain how you understand decolonization just as simply as possible. Yeah, so decolonization is is a very complex topic and different indigenous people are going to, to give you slightly different answers. Although I think most indigenous people uh, the vast majority of indigenous people will recognize that yes, just simply tossing every white person onto a boat and then shipping them back to Europe, while that is a fun fantasy, <laughs> is not exactly practical or achievable. Uh, rather, what indigenous, uh, or rather, what decolonization means is the restoration of indigenous land most indigenous nations have land sharing treaties with settler governments um the Mitzi don't mm-hmm. uh because we are the only indigenous nation that ever went to war with the settler government mm-hmm. um but most other indigenous nations other than the Mitzi nation have land share agreements that the settler governments have just completely disregarded mm-hmm. um and so Decolonization, in large part, means returning to those land share agreements, to equal participation and ownership of the land, and a restoration of indigenous governments and self determination. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just to clarify for people, maybe for people who aren't Canadian, also, um, I guess, could you talk a bit about more the the land sharing agreements, or you mean the treaties? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what I mean is the treaties. So, once again, because my nation specifically doesn't have a treaty, I'm a bit more ignorant on them than I probably should be. I have mm-hmm. been studying up on them in recent history. But mm-hmm. basically, what happened is that uh, the Canadian government, just to speak of Toronto, which is the treaty I probably know the best, the settler government made an agreement with the multitude of nations that already lived on this land so th- this land was already shared by several different nations uh, who all agreed in between themselves that they would all have free access to it and would each partake in the, sh- the, the care for the land and the upkeep of the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, settlers, when they showed up, were brought in on that. Mm-hmm. And there was it's called a wampum belt, which is a sort of symbol of agreement made for how that land and how settlers were to interact with that land and how that they were supposed to be in equal agreement with all of the nations who already shared this, including like for nations of new credits and all of the other, other groups whom lived here mm-hmm. over time when the reservation system kicked in, a lot of those treaties were just disregarded completely. Canada has, so I'm talking about Toronto specifically, but Canada as a nation has treaties with every indigenous nation for covering the whole country. 
Except BC, right? Except BC. Mm -hmm. And every one of those treaties has been broken. Mm -hmm. So a large part of decolonization just means going back to what those treaties originally meant. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to to, to talk talk about a socialist angle, uh, I, I will occasionally hear socialists say that when the Canadian government is dissolved, that like the treaties that it would make would be dissolved. dissolved with them. Oh my God. And they would say, so those would have to be renegotiated or like whatever. And it's just like, no. Wow. You didn't keep them before. Right. Why would we ever trust you to renegotiate new ones? Oh my God. I had not actually heard Settler say that. That is awful. That is absolutely awful. But yeah, thank you for explaining more about that. Um, I think a lot of Canadians or North Americans in general think of the treaties as these agreements that were signed that were like, okay, uh, we'll sign this treaty, meaning you'll get to, we'll we'll invade and we'll take over the whole area, but you'll get to stay over there on this piece mm-hmm. of land. And that's what people think that that's what the treaties meant. The treaties meant you get this slice of reserve over here, but really they were they were meant to be sharing treaties. It was yeah. meant to be, we'll share the land with you if you uphold your responsibilities yeah. to it. And like, you'll hear a lot of myths be like, they traded this land for a bead. Yeah. And what, what the beads, so for, what the beads typically represent is they represent wampum, which is a symbol of the land sharing agreement. Um, the Metsi people, uh, at least like don't really use wampum. That's more of a Haudenosaunee thing. So I, I don't want to speak to the significance of it. It's not really my place. Mm-hmm. But usually when they when the myths about beads come up, they're usually referring to wampum. And wampum is supposed to be a symbol of that agreement. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these, um, the I guess, agreements about the reserves were also signed under duress. So it wasn't even, mm-hmm. you know, wasn't something that was free and fair. So yeah, thank you. I think that's a really great definition of decolonization. Um, some of my indigenous colleagues have described it at its most basic level as just settlers learning to live in the nations that they actually inhabit. Mm -hmm. So learning to follow natural law and like indigenous law. So basically like abolishing settler laws, the rule of the land. Yeah. Well, that's a lot what I mean when I talk about reestablishing and the primacy of indigenous governments, Mm -hmm. because as indigenous people, so I don't think a lot of settlers understand that like. Indigenous people weren't just living wild and free. We had governments. Mm-hmm. We had treaties with each other. Um, mm-hmm. And when Canada and when the U.S. and Mexico, when settler governments invaded, they actively deconstructed our governments. Yeah. Uh, this is perhaps most obvious with the Metsi nations, or at least the most recent with the Metsi nations, because... We only we went to war in the the mid eighteen hundreds with Canada, and they just straight up executed a lot of our political leaders. Like mm-hmm. that is why we have Louis Realde in uh, several uh, several provinces right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, did you want to talk a bit more about I guess them kind of dismantling governments or because I, I mean there's the the Indian Act, the whole ban chief and council and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So basically, they imposed their own forms of govern governance yeah. into indigenous nations, and that's that's how many of them are still quote unquote ruled today. Yeah. So the Metsi also uh, uh, is we function differently. Uh, we don't have like a, a ground chief and council. We're not okay. covered by the Indian Act. Mm. Uh, neither are the Inuit because mm. uh, 
the Inuit weren't settled until like the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is why when you hear Canada refer to indigenous peoples, it's First Nations, Metsi, and Inuit, because everyone from like all of the 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 actual what we would call First Nations, those are all treaty peoples. Mm-hmm. And then the Metsi, because we were uh, what happened with us was in the 1850s, mm-hmm. and then the Inuit was far far later. So we are considered a separate group because we're under a separate status mm. legally mm. in Canada. Right. Yeah. So there, there seems to be just a real piecemeal of the way that Canada relates to different indigenous peoples across Canada, kind of based on just what they what they could get away with <laughs> at the time. Yeah. So, okay. So, so that's how we're conceptualizing basically decolonization then is learning to live in the indigenous nations that we mm-hmm. inhabit and restoring indigenous governance over the land. And respectfully, you know, upholding our responsibilities under the treaties that we're sharing treaties to yeah. begin with, right? Um, so, you know, each Indigenous nation is unique and it can't, can't be said that there's really one Indigenous worldview. But I'm wondering what you see as kind of some of the main differences in worldviews between Indigenous nations on Turtle Island and settlers who hold this, you know, more Western worldview. And what implications you might think that worldview can have for economic and environmental sustainability? Uh, that's, that's a hard one, mostly because there are 2000 different nations and it's hard to generalize 2000 different peoples as, um, especially cause like indigenous includes more than just North America. Like, mm-hmm. um, we are, so when we talk about indigenous, we're talking about like Maori and the people of mm-hmm. uh, the Pacifica, mm-hmm. South America, as much as North America, Australia, mm-hmm. even like Northern Europe has its own indigenous people that often get forgotten. Mm-hmm. Japan also has its own indigenous people that also get forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it's, it's really hard to, to sort of generalize, but I, I'll, I'll do my best. Settler logic or settler tends to be based around an idea of dominance this notion that uh, rather than being part of an ecosystem in a web, you are above it and therefore have right to extract from it. So settler, uh, the biggest difference between settler uh, logic and indigenous logic is the notion that in indigeneity, you are part of an ecosystem. You are, you exist within it. Uh, and you are simply another strand in a grand web, whereas settler logics tends to extract humanity, especially settlers, mm-hmm. from that relationship, mm-hmm. which then turns it from uh, a relationship of like reciprocity into one of dominance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up reciprocity because, as everyone knows, I am obsessed with breeding sweetgrass and I talk about it all the time. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, obviously there's so many different nations and it's it's impossible to really distill one kind of indigenous worldview. But I guess what I've remarked um, looking at different, you know, indigenous ontologies versus the Western worldview is exactly that. And it's it's really this this separation of humans and nature, um, which I've talked about before, I think can lead to the commodification of nature because if you're not a part of something, then it can become quantifiable mm-hmm. um, and distance from you and then sold 
for a price kind of thing? It, um, if I may diverge from that for one brief moment, mm -hmm. because I think it's fitting because we are in Christmas season uh -huh. when we are recording this. Uh, one thing I talk a lot about is how settlers are bereft of spirituality mm. because they have commodified their own culture and their own spirituality into a sort of generic meaninglessness, which mm -hmm. is why Christmas has become the beast that it is now. Yep. That's a really great point. I actually, yeah, to follow up on that, um, I was talking with my friends and my partner actually about my experiences growing up and, you know, I come from a quote unquote Catholic background, right? But all of the quote unquote religious holidays that we ever celebrated, like Christmas or Easter or whatever, it never had anything. I had no idea what this had to do with religion or spirituality, nothing. It was mm -hmm. about presents. Um, Easter was about chocolate and running around and finding eggs. And it was all just about consuming things, right? And then we'd have a meal together, but it was, it had nothing to do with any kind of values. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, 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 was, I was also raised Catholic, so mm. uh, yeah, it'd be like the, the one time a year we attended mass was oh. Christmas and Easter. Okay. And that would be it yep. for us. So mm. had a had a hint of that, but. Hmm. I mean, I could talk about Christianity. <laughs> we could do a whole other podcast on yeah. just talking about how Christianity has been commodified. It's one of my favorite topics. Oh, maybe, maybe we should do I, another podcast. Well, I, uh, this might be out of... <laughs> I regard Jesus as a decolonial figure who has since been colonized. Mm. Hell yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so anyway, we have, let's not dive too deep into that because we could probably go forever. But yeah, I think that it is really important. And I really love the way that Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about the differences in, uh, in worldviews in her book and the implications that that has actually for sustainability, right? So I wanted to ask you, part of the definition for decolonization is settlers learning to, to live by natural law. And I'm wondering if you wanted to maybe touch on what that is to you. And also if you, do you find Robin Wall Kimmerer's concept of this becoming indigenous to place to be a useful way forward? Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I've not finished reading the book yet. I'm only about halfway through, but mm -hmm. uh, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I definitely think the notion of becoming indigenous to place holds a lot of merit. Mm -hmm. Because that is is how instead of dominating an ecosystem and viewing yourself as separate from it, you learn to view yourself as part of it. When you're a part of it, you want to care for it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that has a lot of, of merit to it. Mm -hmm. um, I forgot the other half of the question. Uh, <laughs> just uh, the tenets of natural law. It, it's, that's a hard question for me to answer because I have not lived in a truly like stewardship model. Uh, I've lived a lot closer to one than I do now, now that I live in the city. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to work at a wildlife center. I used to literally take care of Marsh, mm -hmm. but that was a whole different lifetime ago. Mm -hmm. So it's a hard question to answer, mm -hmm. but uh, I think it goes back to the other point, which is that it's about viewing yourself as part of the environment. But also, there's a big part of 
knowing what the environment is. Mm -hmm. So part of when I worked at the Wildlife Center, the biggest part of my job was I would take school children uh, as young as four and as old as 12, and we would just take them into the marsh. We just teach them about the marsh, mm -hmm. teach them about um, cattails and various grasses, turtles, mm -hmm. frogs, mm -hmm. what different trees were named, porcupines, snakes. And one thing I took from that is just the importance of knowing what things are called. Because mm -hmm. if you don't know what to call something, you can never have a relationship with it. Mm -hmm. So I think like if you want to have, if you want to develop a relationship with your environment, mm -hmm. I think the first thing is always to just know what the environment is, know what things are called, mm -hmm. and be able to call them by that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that's really important. And yeah, I just, I, I really, um, I do like this idea of kind of becoming Indigenous as a place. I like how Reverend Walt Kimmerer talks about the difference between kind of like this idea of a pioneer. And she talks about um, basically uh, different kinds of plants because she's a botanist, right? Mm -hmm. So she talks about the kinds of plants that mimic the pioneer or mimic the settler and how they come into an area they kind of take over everything really fast. They suck up all the nutrients and then they move on. And that's kind of their whole MO. That is literally the chapter I am on. Right oh, now. beautiful. Yeah, it's so great. But then she talks about how that's clearly unsustainable. And those, mm -hmm. those kinds of plants, you know, they don't often do that well, right? So the actual more sustainable or the way to, to thrive is to actually go into a place and act as if you're going to stay. And if you're going to stay versus you're going to just use everything up and then move on, like this whole, uh, whatever, manifest destiny and westward expansion. If you're not going to do that, then you actually have to make sure that you understand your place in the ecosystem to make it function in a, in a completely reciprocal way. You also just eventually run out of places to go. Yep. Yep. Uh, I'm sorry, Elon. Mars <laughs> isn't happening. Or if it is, it's going to be a dystopian hellhole, so enjoy it. <laughs> but, yeah. And I mean, that. yeah, that's exactly like capitalism has run out of these places to go. We, we have no more, mm -hmm. basically, spatial fix. Well, we kind of do, but it's really running low. Well, uh, that's, that's the big push for Antarctica. Mm -hmm. But, like, mm -hmm. all capitalism has left is pipe dreams. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so yeah, so the notion of like, you have to act like you're going to stay mm -hmm. is because you have to act like you're going to stay. Mm -hmm. We've only got one planet. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't leave it. Mm -hmm. Once again, despite what Elon Musk says, mm -hmm. even if he gets off, the vast majority of us aren't. Nope. So we have to treat this like we're going to stay. We have to treat this like it's our home mm -hmm. because it is. Mm -hmm. And we have to understand that we are part of it as it is part of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So when I talk about reciprocity and decolonization, I get a lot of pushback from settler leftists who in a pretty racist way say that I am talking about reverting to primitivism or I'm an anarcho-primitivist uh... or this is, yeah, some like, oh, I this is the one that I can't stand the most that I am romanticizing cultures of the past or I am romanticizing um, minority cultures or whatever. So how would you respond to this? And also, 
you know, how, I mean, you said you now live in an urban environment. So how might we start to conceive of living in reciprocity and honoring our responsibilities to the land or in, in what are now urban or semi-urban environments? Obviously, you probably don't have like all the answers to that. But I guess, what do you think of the importance of, of us starting to think about these things? So that that's two different questions. Mm -hmm. The first one is like basically my entire existence on Twitter. Mm. Um, I get a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And what, what I would say is that a lot of that criticism is based on a misunderstanding of what indigeneity even is. Mm -hmm. A lot of that is based off. So like the romanticized, like savage, yeah, that is racist bullshit. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that, like, indigenous tr traditions need should be thrown out. Mm -hmm. Like, we've lived on this continent for eons. Sustainably. Sustain yeah, without climate change. Mm -hmm. And then we have these, like, leftists roll in here, or these settler leftists, I should specify, mm -hmm. uh, settler, who roll in here and be like, we think you need to change your life to be the solution for the problems we introduced. Yep. <laughs> um, and it's just like, no, we've been doing this a lot longer than you. Mm -hmm. And yes, is there a problem with romant romanticization of indigenous people? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean... You can, should, just dismiss indigenous voices mm -hmm. and what we have to say about the ecology and how to live in in, a, in reciprocity with the environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are, are far better people to speak to what that looks like mm -hmm. than I was that I've done some work on that because I did used to work at a wildlife center, but that's a very like limited version of, of what that looks like. Mm -hmm. But yeah, a, a lot of, a lot of uh, settler leftists I find will just use anti-racist rhetoric mm -hmm. to actually just dismiss what indigenous people have to say about life on this continent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they'll use anti-racist sentiment to mask their own racist assumptions that indigenous governance equals primitivism, as if indigenous people didn't have complex systems of governance and laws and everything before settlers arrived. Yeah, so much of it. Just so much of it. It is yeah. like that is that is almost all of Twitter for mm -hmm. me, mm -hmm. at least especially recently. Mm -hmm. uh, there's definitely been a big crop in recent history or er, in recent memory of this mentality, or at least that I've noticed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I've also gotten a lot of um, what I consider really problematic. I mean, I guess I kind of counter that that notion of, oh, you're just romanticizing these past societies or whatever with, well, you're romanticizing Eurocentric linear visions of progress. You know, yeah. you're romanticizing that because a lot of, you know, more stringent Marxists will take the position that like colonialism, like capitalism was good actually because it basically is necessary to create the material conditions for bringing about socialism. Yeah. And like, 
that is a problematic strain of thought because then you like then you'll get Marxists who engage in straight up slavery apologetics because of course Marx also talks about how uh, slavery was necessary for de development of capitalism mm -hmm. uh, and like I don't I don't think that's a fair reading towards Marx I got lots of criticism of Marx I I think that's a very ungenerous reading, mm -hmm. but you will see a lot of hardline Marxists take it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm fully on board with like I'm you know love me the, love me some Marx, but also you know I don't think everything that he said obviously came to pass, or I don't think everything yeah. he said it should be taken as just complete dogma without any critical thought about it. Um, and so I think that it's a really problematic take, just uh, romanticizing this. Eurocentric vision of progress that is premised on this Western worldview that does separate humans and nature and that sees progress as based on, you know, the transformation of the quote unquote natural world into, I don't know, technology mm -hmm. goods for our consumption to make our standard standard of living quote unquote better. I think we really do need to push back on these like Eurocentric visions of progress because that's just taking us so much further away from the idea of the ideas of reciprocity and like upholding responsibilities to the land so. yeah uh to get to your second uh part of that question yes how how do you build relationship with the land in an urban environment mm -hmm. it's a much harder one and something i've been trying to do mm -hmm. so one thing that we haven't discussed about is like indigenous perspectives of personhood mm -hmm. and how many indigenous traditions will like view a river as a person mm -hmm. will view the land as a person. Uh, I can speak for no other indigenous pe people when I say this, but I, I, I view the city as having its own personhood. Mm. Uh, so I try to get to know it. Mm -hmm. um, I spend time on the streets. I, I, I don't, I ramble, I think would be the, like, I don't just, it's not just a matter of I get go to and from work. I, I will walk its streets just with the express intent of getting to know it hmm. and i will try to learn what things are called i will i i love love learning about urban wildlife hmm. because even even with all the concrete you know nature still finds its way there's still wildlife in this city mm -hmm. lots of insects if you ask me to like exemplify toronto in one single word i would say raccoon <laughs> I love raccoons. Oh, they're 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 adorable they're so and great. Cute. Yeah. So like even in this urban concrete environment, nature is still here. Mm -hmm. Uh to shout out my Instagram, which is a cure for sleep, I have painstakingly tried to find natural environments and and symbols of nature inside the city. Yeah. Most of the photos on there are taken with in Toronto limits, some in Port Credit, some in Hamilton, but all of them are urban. Mm -hmm. And it's just, usually you will, you'll have no idea that they're taken in the city, um, but they are. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I do intend that just to show people that there is nature here mm -hmm. and there is life here. And that life also has value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's amazing. And yeah, definitely follow the Instagram. I like looking at all your, your photos. Like I, that. I'm not posting very much because a lot of those photos are taken after work and it is now dark. Oh, right. When I get home. 
from work. <laughs> yeah, it's like three. Very bitter about that. Like three thirty p.m. It's lights yeah. out. Yeah. But yeah, no, I really like that. And there's uh, a lot of people doing a lot of great work. I know there's a lot, like I'm in geography and there's a lot of, I guess, thought or work being done into planning or envisioning ways to make the city more of like a multi-species commons and Mm -hmm. to actually allow for the flourishing of animals here. Because right now, a lot of the time, you know, we have all this pest control. We just, um, we don't make our cities in a way that a lot of species can make it, but some of them make it despite us. <laughs> yeah, a, a lot of it has to do with like this need for control. Mm-hmm. If you let that go, a lot of these species will handle themselves. Mm-hmm. You don't need pesticides. You don't I mean, for, 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 for mass agriculture, you do. But if you want to move away from a, from a resource extraction economy to, a, to one that is more sustainable, mm-hmm. you, don't, you no longer need a lot of, like, you don't need pesticides. You, don't, you, can, let control, you can let go of control. Mm-hmm. These ecosystems manage themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read 1490 one uh, new revelations of the Americas before Columbus mm-hmm. strongly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a examination of pre-contact America, both South and North mm-hmm. and examines both a, on a ecological and sociological level. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the, one of the few books on like native American issues written by a settler that I really recommend. Mm. Uh, he has a follow-up that is like, and here's what after contact happened, and here's how everything changed. Mm-hmm. But one of the things he talks about that I find fascinating is the idea that the entire Amazon rainforest is a curated space. Mm-hmm. Not just a wild space, but in fact, a form of giant garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Charles C. Mann mm-hmm. is the author. Uh, he is a journalist. And the book won the American Author's Prize. It, it, it won a bunch of awards. Oh, great. So, uh, mm-hmm. so I, I guess uh, this idea of the Amazon as a curated space, as in like the indigenous people of the Amazon are actively participating in producing that space because mm-hmm. they are actively part of that. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly it. And mm-hmm. like you can see this in North America as well with what's going on in California. Mm-hmm. The indigenous people of California practiced a form of slash and burn that when settlers took over was eliminated. And that meant that a lot of the dead undergrowth was allowed to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. Mm-hmm. And now on top of like other Californian forestry um, policies, that is having a backlash mm-hmm. of causing these massive forest fires that the region never had traditionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the same in a lot. It's the same in Western Canada as well, because, uh, you know, a lot of the national parks that we have in Canada forcibly displaced the indigenous peoples who were part of producing those landscapes that people found so awe inspiring that they thought, oh, we need to preserve this. But then when they suppressed all the indigenous fire practices, same thing. So, like, I did my research in Jasper National Park. I love Jasper. I, I love haven't Jasper. been back in for, I haven't been back in so long, but I love I love it too. 
but yeah, I mean, they kicked all the indigenous people out. It's a super colonial park. And uh, yeah, a lot of their fire practices uh, have led to either bad forest fires or now there's um, this, what is it? Pine beetle or there's yeah. things that are yeah. running through the forest and you know, a good fire could, could help, but um, they can't allow it to burn too close to the, the town mm-hmm. there, which is developed. So now it's just killing all the trees. Yeah. So. Uh, if you want to add it into the, into, into like a link, Adam Conover as part of Adam Ruins Everything has a great seven minute segment on that mm-hmm. that explains exactly how it happens. Mm. Uh, different part than, than Jasper, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a great little segment there. He has a it's 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 a portion of the show that is free on YouTube. Mm-hmm. So. Great. Okay. Yeah, I'll check that out. So uh, basically, we've just talked about this charge of primitivism and kind of pushing back against this Eurocentric vision of progress. Um, another thing that I wanted to get your take on um, is the idea that uh, a lot of settler leftists don't really have a concept of settler as a social position. So a lot of people will talk only about, okay, there's the proletariat and there's the bourgeoisie and that's all there is, right? So, you know, a settler worker is the same as an indigenous person and that we're all just workers. And like, I find that to be really oversimple. Mm -hmm. Uh, And on on some level, there's truth to it. I am working class Mm -hmm. and like, the fact that I'm indigenous doesn't change that, but also the fact that I'm working class doesn't change the fact that I'm indigenous. Mm-hmm. And the idea of baking it down to like to baking it down to you are just your class and nothing else informs your life mm-hmm. is quite literally erasure. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't just erase indigenous people; it erases immigrants. It erases the descendants of slaves who themselves are effectively displaced indigenous people mm-hmm. it it basically takes an infinite multitude of experiences and reduces them down to a single template mm-hmm. i know like some leftists are anti are anti-id poll mm-hmm. but i have no time for that <laughs> yes. um, because People are, like, identities are part of who people are. They inform things. Mm-hmm. They inform experiences. And they ex- inform how people relate to the world. They inform how people relate to material systems. Mm-hmm. So, yes, absolutely the fact that I am working class informs how I relate to the system overall. Mm-hmm. But that is just one of many experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes down to a, this is going to get me some hate, but I think a lot of that comes down to a reactionary position of people not wanting to recognize or discuss where they stand mm-hmm. in the established power structure. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I will concur with that. Um, and, you know, like. We, I've talked at length. I made a whole video about ID poll and whatever. Um, and, you know, you, you understand that obviously like bourgeois ID politics is whatever, but obviously the anti ID poll stuff is kind of just like a gateway to reaction, <laughs> reactionary lines of thinking. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. It's just like a, an excuse for like edgy leftists to be like, yeah, fuck feminism. <laughs> yeah. But, well, um, like didn't, didn't, uh, I remember reading, 
about the dirt bag left. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget what Meg is. It's spiked, but like spiked with a exclamation mark instead of an I. Oh yeah. Uh, did a thing on like the dirt bag left and the anti ID poll and anti SJW mm. left, mm-hmm. and it was just it was just full of reactionary positions of like Mm -hmm. and other than the fact that they have some like socialist leanings on labor issues Mm -hmm. they were otherwise indistinguishable from like full-on reactionaries Mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely and i really think that this inability to to really grapple with the idea of settler as a social position because as you said yeah your position as a working class worker uh, mediates your relationship to capital, right? So that's your mediation to one oppressive system. But your position as indigenous it mediates your relationship to the overall system of settler colonialism, which is what brought capitalism here, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think for a lot of settlers, this idea that, oh, we're all just workers First of all, primitive accumulation in Canada was totally not the same as primitive accumulation in Europe because for the most part, indigenous labor wasn't actually wanted, right? It was just like, we want the land and you can just go on your reserves and do whatever the hell you want to do over there. Yeah, except for like in various, there were very specific areas Mm -hmm. um, where indigenous labor was wanted. Like a lot of indigenous people built the high high rises in New York because... Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not too knowledgeable on this. There's a documentary on it. I'm, I keep meaning to watch and not. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Indigenous people didn't ex- didn't uh, show the same fear of heights mm. that settlers did. Mm-hmm. So they hired Indigenous people to build the sky rises in New York in the 30s. I don't know why Indigenous people would, wouldn't have the same fear of heights. I don't know if it's cultural or it might even just be straight up a myth. Yeah. Wouldn't surprise me if it was all just a myth to begin with. Mm-hmm. But there, there definitely were spit. But once again, it's you have performed this labor for you now. Fuck off. Right. Yeah. Because it was mostly, I mean, like colonialism, settler colonialism is mostly about the conquest of land, right? Yeah. The acquisition of land. And so for a lot of indigenous people who were just forced onto reserve, they weren't really proletarianized mm-hmm. in the same way that, you know, European Europeans were proletarianized, yeah. right? And I think that this inability to talk about the settler, right? Like, we're not bourgeoisie, but we are benefiting as settlers in the settler colonial project. And yeah, I think lacking an analysis of that is why so many leftist organizations in North America have such a shitty understanding or they have such shitty politics around decolonization, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they'll be like, oh, I acknowledge or I, yes, I acknowledge or I respect indigenous self-determination, but... Nobody knows what that means. Yeah. I, I do want to make one... You're, you're probably aware of it. I want to make one one note for your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no Metsi reservations. And there mm-hmm. are no Metsi re, uh, reserves. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we were colonized in a very different fashion, uh, we, we went to war. Right. Uh, and that sort of changes our relationship to the whole state as opposed to other indigenous groups that were colonized in a more passive fashion. Mm-hmm. But... We like our land is still occupied. Uh, much of it, much of our traditional territories are national parks now. We can't return to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, many indigenous, many, many Metis people were displaced after the rebellions. Mm-hmm. 
So it's, it's, it's a very different experience from a settler, even if we are, don't have reserves, to be like, to live on land that is occupied. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I really do view Canada as an occupying force. Yes. I know like a lot of settlers don't view it that way, but mm-hmm. Metis and Indigenous land is occupied. Mm-hmm. And that changes your relationship to the to the Canadian government, to the American government, to the Mexican mm-hmm. government in very different ways mm-hmm. than it does than like a settler who maybe is the same class, maybe even works in the same job would have them to meet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great point. And as so many leftists will be able to to make those connections if you're looking elsewhere, like if you're looking at like Palestine or whatever, mm-hmm. people will look there and be like, oh, this is a horrible, violent colonial occupation, whatever. And then they won't be able to tame, to take that same critical lens and look at Canada and be like, okay, but we're the settlers here. Like yeah. this is inherently violent and it's ongoing. It's not something that happened in the past. It's ongoing because we continue to be here and we continue to alienate indigenous peoples from their lands and to disrespect the treaties. And so if you're trying to make a revolution on indigenous land that doesn't acknowledge or doesn't have any analysis of yourself as a settler, part of the settler colonial project, then you're just going to, you're just going to, keep facilitating that i think part of that is because canada especially canada has been very good at hiding this Mm -hmm. Uh, you will see militarization against indigenous people on occasion Mm -hmm. like definitely oka is Mm -hmm. the first one that comes to mind but for the most part Canada loves its racism with a side of plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think Canada is very good at erasing its dark history, its oppression. Even when like the report on missing and murdered Indigenous women came out and said, this is a genocide mm-hmm. that is happening now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were many settler reporters, such as the Kays, Mm. who were very, very quick to deny mm-hmm. and explain away why it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I remember I was talking to a friend of mine who's an immigrant from India, and she was talking about how when she was naturalized, she went through education programs on, on Canada. All they told her about Indigenous people was that there are three types First Nations, Metsi, and Inuit. They didn't specify any what differentiate those three types. They didn't specify that First Nations refers to hundreds of governments. Uh, and that residential schools was a dark time in Canadian history, but it's over now and okay. Mm. That is all they told her about Canadian history in regards to Indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. So... That is the narrative that Canada likes to push the world over. Mm-hmm. And this is the same narrative that they push through the education system. Uh, you might get a bit of a better idea if you go through Canada's education system than that. But just barely one. Like, they'll tell you about the actual rebellions. They'll tell you who the real is, but they won't. Yeah. Like, that's still, like, one tiny module that you'll do in a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's true. I mean, they only tell you about like the active fighting or the active violence. Um, and I think it's it's obviously really difficult for people to actually understand, you know, 
structural, institutional, slow violence. Yeah. But you'd think that leftists would have a better handle on that. <laughs> even, even things like Oka, like Canada pushes a narrative that that is a police action, not a military action. Mm. And the fact of the matter is there's no effective difference. Mm -hmm. But to the public perception, there is. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like Unistoten, like yeah. very recently and very militarized, but it was RCMP, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, Unistoten is a very good example and still ongoing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess um, moving from that, <laughs> how do you see, because, you know, some leftists, again, will, will support like separatist movements in Canada. So I guess, how do you see these movements like Quebec or Wexit in the context of decolonization? Don't care. A settler government is a settler government, regardless mm -hmm. of whether it's two settler governments or one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is there implications like if, if Wexit happens, would there be implications? Like, could they sever the treaties? Because the treaties are made with the crown. I don't actually know. Uh, it's another thing where, yes, those treaties are made with the crown, but I still think it's on. it would be on the Alberta government. I don't even know. Like, the Alberta BC government? The, the Like, that would be a disaster. That would, it would be so much racism. Yeah. Just so much racism. That would be horrifying. Um, so it would still be on them, because on paper, those treaties may be with the crown. And there's a, that's a lot of reasons why Indigenous people won't talk to Ottawa about them, is because it's like, no, we made these with the crown. Mm -hmm. But I still think it would be beholden for a settler government, regardless of whether they answer the crown or not, to still be responsible for them. Regardless of... of whether you change your figurehead or not, you are still the ones on the hook for honoring these these treaties. Yeah, well, I mean, I agree. I just, I hope that they yeah. wouldn't see it that way. Oh, they won't. <laughs> they absolutely won't. Yeah, so I feel like that's, I, I, when I hear things like that, I'm like, that sounds really dangerous for the indigenous I, nations that live there. I Oh, it's, it's super dangerous, but it's already dangerous. Um, yeah, yeah, and I have, like, I'm, I'm from Saskatchewan originally. And I, I just, I couldn't care less. Mm. One, it's a pipe dream. Yeah. Uh, the second, because ultimately, Alberta and BC and Saskatchewan have far more to gain by keeping their white supremacist settler state consolidated than by breaking it up. Mm. Uh, that I don't think, I think it would be a situation where they would vote for it and instantly regret it and instantly repair. Mm -hmm. Sort of what you saw with Brexit. Although it looks like Brexit might happen, I still doubt it. But very, very similarly where it happened and then instantly there was like a national regret. Yeah, but then they ended up voting for fucking Boris Johnson. What happened? I... <laughs> I, I want to say I'm surprised, but I'm not. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But I also, Boris Johnson also promised that he would get Brexit done, and he hasn't done that yet. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, well, I guess, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it unfolds. But, uh, okay, so I'm wondering, decolonization, is this something, given that, given the, uh, deep interconnections between colonialism and capitalism is decolonization something you think that is possible under capitalism? Absolutely not. 
<laughs> um, not not for a second. Mm-hmm. Because capitalism as a system requires land exploitation. Mm-hmm. And I do not think that decolonization is possible with a system of land exploitation as it currently exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially like Canada, our whole economy is based on extractivism. Yep. Uh, so yeah, so I don't think as long as, as a system of extraction and infinite growth mm-hmm. continues to exist, I don't think decolonization is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is why I'm a socialist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's, I think there's still work that we can do now and that we should be doing now, oh, obviously under this system, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Like there's so much Canada needs to do. It needs to recognize the rights of Metsi and non-status Indians as being equal to status Indians. It needs to stop suing children mm-hmm. who were abused. That's a thing that is currently happening. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of work to still be done, mm-hmm. even in the current settler capitalist model that Canada exists in. Like it needs to it needs to fucking clean up grassy narrows and all oh of the God. other land that it poisoned. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's so much work to be done. Mm-hmm. Even even before we even talk about like full on decolonization mm-hmm. and the change of and then the moving moving away from a settler capitalist mm-hmm. state. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it, yeah, it strikes me as it's going to be very difficult under capitalism. Um, I, the work I'm doing now for my postdoc is working with, um, I don't know if you've heard of the indigenous circle of experts, um, but they're working to basically decolonize conservation by uh, facilitating the implementation of indigenous protected and conserved areas. So basically it's like nations can declare indigenous protected areas or tribal parks as basically a declaration of sovereignty and then to also manage those lands in accordance with their own constitutions and laws and which is all great. However, um, it's like next to impossible within the context of land struggles. And there's always, you know, mining corporations, et cetera. And, you know, the Canadian duty to consult and whatever that just goes out the window when it comes to, you know, if there's, if it's going to be economically productive for settlers or the settler state or settler governments, then indigenous rights go out the window. And so basically every time. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, all these nations that are moving forward with this, these declarations of sovereignty, and there's a lot of support, like there's a lot of like academic NGO and another support for these moves and these protected areas, but obviously, uh, yeah, within this current framework. I definitely think that we're starting to see a, a swell in the academic side anyways, of the current system on an ecological level is not working. And a recognition, at least somewhat, that like, hey, indigenous people ran this thing sustainably for millennia, mm-hmm. and now things aren't working. Maybe we should go back to the thing that worked. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that it's very inc- it's a very incomplete model for corporations, yep. and like, and of course, ultimately, the Canadian government is not beholden to its people. Mm-hmm. Is not beholden to academics, is not beholden to land. It is beholden to capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, as long as Canada is beholden to capital, there's just 
this is just going to be the reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, speaking of that, <laughs> going forward, uh, you know, as a leftist, as a socialist, uh, you obviously want to see the end of the system and a much better system ushered in. But do you see the concept of a settler revolution at the current state level as something that could align with decolonization or does it merely continue and uphold colonial power relations? I fear that it would simply continue the current colonial mindset. Mm -hmm. But I would still rather live in a non-capitalist state yeah um and i i do think that indigenous people would find a better a better footing in a system where we weren't systematically impoverished Mm -hmm. so i still even though i I definitely have reservations Mm i am still in favor of revolution uh to the shit we got now (laughs) all right so maybe i should rephrase is is there a i guess a more productive way forward that you think would align better with decolonization well i I definitely think that leftists need to start putting indigenous peoples forward um especially because we're just running out of time Mm -hmm. like we very well may see total biosphere collapse in our lifetime Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's a frightening thought. Yep. And the people who are doing the most, like indigenous people protect 80% of wildlife or of, of, of the biosphere, remaining mm-hmm. biosphere, but are 5% of the population. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the people who are doing the vast majority of the work are sidelined in these conversations. And I definitely think leftists need to consider who is actually doing the work and putting them forward. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And yeah, I mean, obviously, I would choose revolution over no revolution. But the way that a lot of people talk about it is, is really frustrating to me because it just seems like, you know, indigenous inclusion in a project instead of you know, obviously indigenous leadership. Well, and, and what does inclusion mean? Yeah. Is it like, is it, is it, cause that's, inclusion is often very tokenistic. Yeah. It reminds me of this, like kind of the lib- liberal, like diversity politics. Yeah. It, it's, it's very, it's very like corporate, mm-hmm. very like, we need one person to speak to this diversity issue. Yes. <laughs> and like, this is field, all the diversity questions. So like they're one person of color on the board. Mm surrounded by like white people otherwise yeah yeah and i guess i also worry that like a settler revolution at the state level without a concurrent revolution in our worldview right like without kind of stepping out of the settler ontology Mm -hmm. and quote-unquote becoming indigenous to place i feel like a lot of you know socialist states at that level could easily just basically you know yeah democratize the means of production but still not actually create a system in which we're living sustainably or or reciprocity because you're still looking at a eurocentric model of labor Mm -hmm. which still relies on the on the extraction economy Mm -hmm. uh and that is definitely something we need to move away from the extraction economy yeah there's no way around it Mm -hmm. uh and 
a socialist system that doesn't do that does not solve the immediate problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really big problem because so many leftists are like, you know, whatever the only, the only solution is revolution. Yes, I agree. (laughs) But it really actually depends what kind of revolution we're having. And what comes after. And what comes after. And if we're just, if we're following blueprints that have happened in like the, you know, in the 1900s, Obviously, we can draw a lot from them, but we, if we're just implementing the, that kind of like industrial socialism or whatever, everyone gets their guaranteed job, they go to work for 40 hours a week, they get their labor vouchers and they get their rations and they have their, you know, that's yeah. that's going to improve sustainability, but it's really not going to radically, radically change things. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of solutions that like you talk about, it's like maybe those if we started those in the 80s. Yeah, they would be a viable option, but we're we're out of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, like grossly. Yeah, I saw what you post. I shared, but you posted that thing about the oceans running out of water, uh, oxygen, which is something that I've been like learning. But I learned about that over ten years ago. Now, yeah, I I remember learning about climate change in the eighties. Yeah, the the first climate, the first like climate change papers come from World War One. Capitalism has had a hundred years to solve this and has only made it worse. Yep. And brush it under the rug. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like the planet running out of oxygen is just generally one of my greatest fears. <laughs> yeah. And like oxygen levels, historically oxygen levels have fluctuated in the planets before. Dinosaurs would not be able to live in our environment because they lived in such a high oxygen rich environment mm-hmm. that we do not currently have. Mm-hmm. That is just part of ecology, but also those things tend to happen over eons. Yes. We've seen a decline in literally our lifetime. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's really horrifying. So, so yeah, that's, I guess, another reason why I think it's important to challenge this, like, Western Eurocentric linear vision of progress and then say that we're just going to base our socialist state off of that. And that doesn't make me a primitivist. Yeah. Thank oh, you. Oh, I... <laughs> I am definitely not a primitivist. Mm-hmm. I just do not like we don't have to give up modern technology mm-hmm. to live in a reciprocal and uh, a reciprocal relationship with the environment. Mm-hmm. We do have to radically change our relationship to technology, mm-hmm. but that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and we have to actually recognize you know, quote unquote, all our relations, right? And like, actually have a much better conception of that as opposed to just what do we need? Okay, let's transform the earth the way that we need it, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, so given all of this, um, how can settler leftists, uh, you know, decolonize our organizing strategies and our visions for revolution? What might be some ideas for where to begin? So I think the the first thing would be to just put indigenous voices first mm-hmm. and then to, to to recognize that like the revolution we need is one beyond just a revolution of labor. Yes. So again, that might've been enough a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. It no longer is. And then to also, to also just realize that like you have a relationship with land and your relationship with land is like both in terms of like, you live here and therefore take up space and land and are part of a vast ecology. 
but also you have a relation to the land that like you are a settler on this land and you need to recognize your relationship with it in order to make yourself in order in order to make it make space for yourself on this land mm-hmm. yeah part of that is to just not consume and consume and consume and that's hard mm-hmm. like unlearning consumerism is hard mm-hmm. i have a hard time with it yeah same <laughs> everyone does yeah. Like deprogramming. So even 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 getting beyond decolonization, unlearning capitalism, mm-hmm. unlearning power shift dynamics yeah. is work. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And for, yeah, for settlers, unlearning settler colonialism and understanding your place and really trying to unlearn whiteness, basically. Yeah. Well, that's that's a whole. So like the idea that that there was an active push to take a a bunch of unrelated cultures and turn them into a gestalt group known as white. That's a whole podcast in and of itself. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But this is, I I sometimes think that that's kind of lacking in leftist spaces, right? Like we'll talk about whiteness and we'll criticize whiteness, but then we won't have, again, we won't have a really great analysis of settlers and social position. We won't have a really great analysis of how whiteness operates in our own organizing. Yeah, well, I mean, that's another another thing that we did not bring up that I get a lot is people talking about how indigenous people think they have, like, racial knowledge. It's just, that's a misunderstanding of what indigenous means. Yes. I, I don't know. You Like, people in podcasts can't see me. I'm pretty pale. Like, I am white passing. Mm-hmm. But I am no less indigenous. There are, there, are, there are indigenous people who are black. There are indigenous people who, like... All shades. I, I've known Asian Indigenous people because it's about community. It's about relationships. Mm-hmm. It's about who claims you. Mm-hmm. It's not about ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And to to say that it is about ethnicity is really just pushing a deeply racist, mm-hmm. white supremacist myth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I heard that. A lot, unfortunately. <laughs> and that's another reason why I like the concept of becoming Indigenous to place, because it, it makes space for the settler who is willing to learn and to to try and, you know, rid rid the settler in themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is obviously important. So yeah, I, I guess, I, I, yeah, in terms of putting Indigenous voices forward first, it seems like an important step would be to kind of get to get to know the nations that yeah. we inhabit, like the local nations. So yeah, so if you want to talk about like what what left? Sorry, I, I got into like a broad spectrum, but yeah, no, that's like, good. Yeah, the yeah. So if you want to talk about like learn whose land you're on, mm-hmm. seriously, mm-hmm. like learn about your local. If if you are if you are in a in a land that has treaties, learn about the treaties. Mm-hmm. Uh, like learn your history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, learn your responsibilities to the land. Do you have any suggestions for, uh, maybe you, you don't know because you're not part of like a local nation, um, but for leftists, you want to like kind of make more inroads with local nations to, you know, build relationships, support their struggles, um, learn from them what honoring the treaties looks like in your local area. Just reach, Just reach, out, out. reach, out, reach out to people. Yeah. like. Yeah, a lot of a lot of nations will happily talk to people. Mm-hmm. Like we want, we want to have, we want to be heard. Mm-hmm. So if you're just like, hey, we're doing, a, if you if you talk to your like local Native Friendship Center, mm-hmm. being like, hey, we're doing like a thing. Do you want presence or mm-hmm. do you want or like, can we use your space? Mm-hmm. Like 
just reach out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's like step one that I've been wanting to do a lot more. But um, I've just been swamped with work and my chronic illness has been bad. <laughs> but, but definitely something I, yeah, I really want to do. So that's all the questions that I have. Is there anything else you'd like to add into the, the discussion? Um, I think I'm good. The <laughs> only The only thing I can think of is one final point that kind of doesn't fit into there so that i hear a lot of when when settlers talk about this isn't necessarily a leftist thing specifically although i think it applies to a lot of apologetics i hear for colonization is that like native people didn't own don't own land and it's just like well Mm -hmm. that's true but that's because the land owns us mm. and that's why so many native people have been so resistant to just leaving mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah that's a great point another terrible thing i hear is oh you know well everyone at some point conquered another group of people indigenous people conquer each other too so whatever what's 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 the big deal? That's just yeah, how it is. And there's, oh, uh, that's one, one like other than the Medici nation, there was no war. Mm -hmm. Like we were the only indigenous nation that ever went to war with Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, so one that kind of throws that, like that in, uh, out, out the windows. Most native peoples were not conquered by war. They were conquered by just being lied to. Mm -hmm. No, but they'll say, like, oh, indigenous people fought wars against each yeah. other. Yeah, so, like... and, like, sure, <laughs> that definitely definitely happened. Like, there, there definitely was conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not, like, anyone says, says, there, says there wasn't is romanticizing. Mm -hmm. But conflict does not justify, like, the fact that there was conflict between indigenous nations does not justify genocide. Yeah. Or like, like, what the fuck? Like, conflict is very different than a settler colonial structure yeah. that, you know, like, devastates people and exploits them for centuries. So, anyway, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. This was a really great discussion. Um, do you want to leave off by just shouting out where to find you and the Indigenous Anarchist Federation, etc.? Uh, yeah, so you can find me personally at a neon green city on Twitter, all one word, and you can find the Indigenous Anarchist Federation at the IAF underscore FAI on Twitter and our webpage, the IAF dash FAI dot org. You can find our Facebook is just the Indigenous Anarchist Federation. Mm -hmm. And you can find my personal Instagram at a cure for sleep. Also all one word. Awesome. Okay. So we'll, we'll link all of these in the description box below. And thank you just once again for coming on. This is really, really wonderful. It's been a pleasure.